You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 24, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. And today we've got a great episode with Dr. Richard Reese. Dr. Reese is a retired pathologist who cut his teeth, so to speak, back in 1980 in Minneapolis where he witnessed and wrote extensively about the industrialization of medicine, as he coined it at the time, where basically the, it was the emergence of the HMO markets, or health maintenance organizations. And these forever changed the landscape of medicine and how it was delivered, from once being primarily given by solo practitioners or very small hospitals, to suddenly large healthcare systems and corporations. And it was the introduction of corporate management styles into medicine from what it had been previously. And his contention is that physicians only today have finally caught up to this reality and have been able to recover and start finding innovative ways of delivering healthcare, which bypasses these corporations. There are definitely parallels between today and 1980 and sort of the rise of healthcare organizations today in how the health maintenance organizations formed in 1980. Anyway, we'll get into that and we'll talk a little bit about the history of medicine back in the 1960s when Dr. Reese left medical school and finished his residency. If you're a repeat listener, I thank you so much for coming back. If you're a new listener, thank you, friend, for sending your way. Make sure you go and click the subscribe button or whatever favorite podcast player you use. The show is completely free. I would also like to recommend that you visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash theparadox. There you can become a patron supporter of the show, where all the money raised goes towards the production and promotion of the show. I'm also providing bonus content there now, consistently, and by consistently, I mean I've done it twice. <laughs> but there, not only do we have access to pre- interviews I've done on other podcast shows, but I also have some brand new content that I'm adding weekly. This content is so far just related to medicine, where I'm talking about the physician survey results, which are very interesting. Also, I'm going to be discussing things in the future like group visits. That means you go and visit with your physician with 14 of your closest strangers. And as always, the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 024 will have all the links to resources we discussed during the show. These include most of Dr. Reese's books and some prior episodes we've done. However, the book that I discuss in the show, Who Shall Care for the Sick, which was released in 1988, which is a collection of Dr. Reese's essays and a few speeches he gave. I found the book through my favorite website for used books, abebooks.com. I'll provide a link for that just so you can look for other used gems that you might want to pick up that are out of print. And finally, one programming note, I'd always plan on doing episode 25 with my wife, Dr. Marcy Larson, who's a pediatrician. My intention was to have a fun episode where you kind of just answer listener questions or, I don't know, just kind of goof around. Uh, that's obviously going to change as we're going to discuss uh, the loss of our son, Andrew, in August. Uh, so it'll be an episode about grieving, I think, and sort of what it's like to try and practice medicine and kind of cope with things. 
we'll kind of see where the conversation goes, but I urge you to look forward to that show next week. But for now, let's listen to Dr. Reese and me talk about the history of healthcare, the rise of HMOs, and how this relates to today. Enjoy. Thank you. This is Eric Larson. I'm here with Dr. Richard Reese, who's a retired pathologist and is someone I sort of ran into on Twitter who had a lot of interesting things, insights into medicine today. And after oh, getting back and forth a little bit with him, I uh, learned that he's written extensively. He's written a number of books. And since he's been in practice and well now out of practice, you have a historical perspective on medicine that I, not many of my guests have had, and certainly I don't have. And so that's why I wanted to bring you on the show because a lot of my audience, although a number of them are physicians, I always guess it's probably a third of physicians, a third are non-physicians, and a third are people who are familiar with physicians, either as family members or um, close friends. And so that's why they kind of sort of want to learn a, bit more about, a little bit more about healthcare and medicine. And uh, what I did was purchase one of your books, and it's actually, it's not your most recent book. It's the one called and Who Shall Care for the Sick, which I think published in 1988, which is a collection of essays that you had written as a, an editor for one of the Michigan medical, or sorry, the Minnesota um, medical journals. Uh, but I'd like to talk to you about the history of medicine and sort of where we are today and sort of your insights in that. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Well, I finished Duke Medical School in 1960, and I finished my pathology residency at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut in 1965, which is the, the, the year that Medicare and Medicaid were introduced and have flourished ever since. Uh, when, uh, when they were introduced, President Lyndon Johnson said the cost would never exceed uh, $9 billion by 1990, <laughs> but instead by 1990 it was $100 million, and today it's something like $1.3 trillion. <laughs> yeah. And and the government, uh, the government spends sixty uh, percent of the sixty percent of healthcare spending is by the the government. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in Minneapolis uh, when uh, United Healthcare and the HMO movement took off. Uh, in nineteen seventy three, Paul Elwood, who is still alive at ninety one. <laughs> who was called the father of the HMOs and coiner of the term uh, health maintenance organization, persuaded uh, Richard Nixon to, uh, to introduce the HMO Act, which required employers to offer uh, HMOs as an, as an option. And that opened the door basically for uh, for for health plans at that time in in Hennepin County Minnesota which was Minneapolis the doctors introduced a health plan and it was subsequently taken over by uh, entrepreneur and insurance man from Georgia and converted into United Healthcare uh, since then United Healthcare has become the dominant health plan or HMO in America. And it was the first, to my mind, to recognize that that healthcare was a national business opportunity. And they quickly seized upon that by going to all of the uh, government uh, employees and to uh, teachers around the country and to introduce uh, prepaid health care, which is another word for HMOs. Right. And since then, it has flourished. And today, uh, United Healthcare, which is the biggest of them all, has uh, revenues of $200 billion and is, is the dominant HMO in America. And part of the thing that sparked their growth was a contract they signed with AARP in 1998 for the purpose of selling uh, supplemental Medicare plans. 
And today, United Healthcare is a giant in that industry. It has revenues, as I said, of over 200 million, with something like 270,000 employees nationwide. And the health uh, health plans have dominated the uh, U.S. healthcare scene, and collectively they have revenues of about 900 billion dollars. My experience in Minneapolis was when, when the HMOs took over, I saw a power struggle evolving between doctors and HMOs or health plans. And that's why the subtitle of my book, And Who Shall Care for the Sick, The Corporate Transformation in Minnesota is Important. Mm-hmm. At that point, we had a transformation from private practice, really. Uh, to manage care, uh, and and managed care has won that power struggle. They're the dominant force in healthcare. In Minneapolis at the time, the first thing I noticed was that was that the doctors suddenly were disillusioned by all of this, and the HMOs controlled the the, the private practice more or less, mm-hmm. and the doctors felt an economic a negative HMO, a negative economic impact, and they began to do such things as uh, taking their kids out of private schools and retreating to the suburbs and generally just and abandoning uh, solo practice, moving to other states. And so it had an unquestionable economic negative impact from doctors. And it's my, uh, I wrote a series of essays for Minnesota Medicine describing the phenomena that was taking place. And we had over a thousand requests for reprints. Doctors believed what I was saying. And we had at, at that point in 1980s, a meeting of all the doctors to meet with the HMO officials, including the head of United Healthcare, and the doctors were furious and they were angry, <laughs> but in, as I wrote in one of my essays, they were finessed by the, <laughs> uh, by the business community, which instead of talking about the impact of doctors talked in managerial terms about risk and management and so forth. And the doctors didn't, didn't know the language of health care or the language of managed care. Business. And since they are, then managed care has grown to be uh, the major phenomena in, in U.S. health care, doctors are just beginning to react to this. And, and that is one way, one place you can read about this is through the work of the Physicians Foundation, which has done five biannual surveys of how doctors feel about what's happening. And, and what they, they're demoralized and depressed, and, yeah. uh, and they have a series of uh, complaints about managed care. Their survey, which was just released, a national survey of physicians, indicates that their their chief complaint is uh, number one uh, electronical electronic medical records which they say distract from their relations with patients and take time away from the patients uh, their second complaint is is regulations bureaucratic regulations their the third uh, their third complaint is loss of autonomy, and their fourth complaint is the malpractice burden they must bear. So right. the physicians, as a group, internationally, uh, or not internationally, nationally, <laughs> is uh, is one of uh, depression, demoralization, and burnout. Burnout is the most talked about topic of the day. Basically, uh, it, it is said to affect 50% of, over 50% of doctors who feel uh, they had no long, only 2.5% of doctors in this survey felt they had any sway or influence over what was happening 
to them and to health reform. Uh, so, so doctors are feeling uh, depressed and de- demoralized by all of these changes. Right. And so I guess uh, the the fun thing I had about reading your book, now I had, a, it was actually, it's very difficult getting a hold of this book. I will, I'll post this and the other, some of the other books you've written on the show notes page at theparadox.com. Um, but uh, the neat thing was looking back at what medicine was like in the 80s and sort of, and, and as you were describing a process, which I think many physicians, at least in reading your essay, your impression that most physicians didn't really know what was happening, as you said, as the nature of medicine and the way it was going to be delivered was going to change forever. And it was moving from a, um, I don't know if you say a cottage, cottage industry, but it was certainly moving away from the way they practiced before. So my impression was in the, in the 60s and 70s even, that it was mainly independent or, or solo specialty practices that were fairly small delivering healthcare. And then, then the, then business sort of took over and larger corporations, which had the advantage of having larger access to capital. And so they could um, do innovative things and to use economies of scale that large or that small independent practices and even hospitals that were at that time, most of them were independent of each other. And so they were, they were competing against each other in a, within a, a certain market. Uh, and then there was, uh, and then, as you said, that the physicians were unfamiliar with the managerial sort of way of getting, uh, of handling large organizations, which they were suddenly becoming a part of. And also um, that it was just that dealing with regulations and, and, and large organizations was just not something that physicians were very skilled at. And so not only did, so they were, they were entering into a marketplace they were not prepared for. And then once it, it hit, hit them, they were unable to navigate with really what was going on. And so they were kind of swallowed up and suddenly uh, before they knew what was happening, they were, they were kind of either bought up or they were, had signed agreements with health organizations that they, they didn't really know how to, how to move their business forward at that point. And the relationship with patients and everything seemed to just suddenly change. That's right. <laughs> What I found interesting in the in reading about your essays in the 1980s, and you're, as you're talking about the industrialization of medicine and the and the adoption of HMOs and and their rapid expansion, not only through the Minnesota market but also through the entire country, uh, is that at that time people really were, as always, we're very incapable, we're very incapable of predicting the future because we can only see sort of what we can see, and our ability to really envision the future very well is is so cloudy. And it's, it's kind of one of the reasons, I guess, you know, one would argue central planning rarely works because we're, we're our inability to predict the future accurately. Uh, but my, many people at that time were saying, oh, well, 100% of care will be managed care. And you were at the time saying, I don't think that's the case. I think it's, this is not going to be as complete a penetration as everyone thinks. And it turns out you're right. Um, I'm sure you didn't envision exactly how things are going to play out. But I'm curious what you think caused the HMOs not to manage care. If you could explain why they didn't get 100% coverage, you know, of of all medical care, and uh, and uh, then and then what happened in the ensuing time up until let's say Obamacare, when I think things started changing again. Since uh, Obamacare was introduced, it it is. Uh, 97 or 37 percent of people employed have been employed in one one way or another in the healthcare industry. So it's a huge business opportunity, and for not only for health plans but for medical suppliers. And I don't think in in, in many cities, including New York City and Boston, it's the number one quote industry. <laughs> And, and so this is a this is a huge phenomena if one sits back and looks at it from, from that perspective. And in many, uh, particularly rural areas, it's the only game in town. It's yeah. the major employer. Uh, and, and when you think about it, it's the only industry that affects everybody, everybody, man, woman, and child, <laughs> from birth to death. And so it, it's it's no wonder this has happened. And uh, America, being a very entrepreneurial country, the the corporations have seized upon this and uh, as, a, as a huge business opportunity. And it wasn't until recently, in my opinion, that uh, doctors began to uh, 
to react uh, to this, and they they reacted uh, right now by by pushing quote free market medical uh, care. And through such organizations as Surgery Center of Oklahoma with, uh, and direct patient care through direct pay and cutting out all of the managed care third parties. So there's something going on out there, and I think it's significant. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. As I see it, Medicare and Medicaid and the, the major healthcare corporations have a significant advantage, and they're they're not going away. I foresee, possibly incorrectly, a kind of a two-tier system. Yeah. One uh, dominated by the government and corporations and managed care, and the other a, a smaller private sector. We'll see how that pans out. And don't forget in all of this that employers, and this is a little bit of history, and I think it's important, in in the in the 1940s, corporations delegated offered health care benefits rather than than increased wages to retain employees, and that has persisted until the present. Employers cover 150 million Americans, which is nearly half of the population, and they're they're a significant force. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, what what this these forces of free market medic, medicine are are saying is, if only these employers would directly pay these ambulatory care centers and these direct patient care centers in cash and encourage their patients to shop around, that that would uh, the, the ensuing competition would would lower prices significantly. We don't know where that's where where that's going now, or whether that will happen. But there are a lot of ma- major social forces at work, and of course, all of this is kind of crystallized in the in the midterms when the, when the Democrats are going to push uh, Medicare for all, <laughs> and the and the and the Republicans are going to, going to suggest alternatives. Uh, to this, we'll we'll see how the public responds to all of that. Yeah, I I um, well, I always kind of laugh at the fact that these. I feel like the uh, parties, although they seem different, they they seem fairly similar. Uh, the Republicans, as soon as they were given the opportunity to uh, do what they promised to do, they ended up doing nothing <laughs> when it came to healthcare reform. Uh, after they got uh, all all had levers of power within in Washington D.C., there was effectively no change to where we are. We're the same place we were, even I say, I argue even before Obamacare, as far as, um, except that things are much more expensive now. But you're right. It seems like uh, from a, from a, from a comp- competitive standpoint, and it's certainly uh, the way healthcare is being delivered, it does feel like there's a change occurring in the sense that physicians are, are, up, are recognizing that they have some power where I think for the last 20 years before that, they felt fairly powerless in the sense that they could do anything to deliver care, you know, outside of using a large institution or large healthcare system. But what, what I found interesting in your, in your um, book is as you're talking about the growth of the HMOs and the industrialization of the HMOs uh, of, the, of medicine, a curious thing happens in the HMOs, which were people anticipated 100% market penetration and everyone would be at managed care. What happened is that it really didn't, it never happened. It, it was interesting because you predicted that <laughs> in one of your, uh, in the mid 80s, when everyone was sort of doom and gloom in the medicine field that everything's being managed care, you saw that that wasn't going to happen. Well, I think the original vision of the HMOs was to uh, kind of control the primary care market. Uh, so to reduce referrals to hospitals and to kind of control the, the system. From below, but as it turns out, America is not that kind of country. America is a country that believes in specialists, <laughs> and you've got to remember that three out of every four doctors is a specialist, and people go to specialists to get their problems solved, their their big problems, and so that was one one factor that didn't play into this scenario. 
Another another factor to me was that this is a very diverse country, and different sections of the country have different visions of the way things ought to be. Take Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente's vision is that we're going to have a vertically integrated system from the top down with one company in control of the health plans and, and the doctors and the hospitals. And that works in California, and it, and it has worked since 1945 or so. And that's one vision. Uh, other visions are separate, integrated uh, hospital systems, such as or some controlled by doctors like the Mayo Clinic with people on salary, with physicians on salary. That's another vision. Another vision is, in, in particularly in the, in the Southwest and, and the South, is that doctors will remain independent and, the, and will be the dominant players in the system. Well, th these various scenarios are, are sometimes in a clash all by themselves, and it hasn't hasn't worked out that way. And now we have a new phenomenon, and that's the doctors and the hospitals. <laughs> at odds with each other. Another problem, and Peter Drucker, the famous father of, of management, says that healthcare is a two-headed monster. The hospitals are one head, and they're professionals that know how to manage large groups of people. And the other head are the doctors who know how to manage one patient at a time. They, they both have their expertise, and both are important, but inevitably uh, differences emerge and it becomes a problem keeping this all together. So some of the, those are some of the things that have. And then there's the, the vision of America. America is, is basically an idea that freedom is important and it's a bottom-up society and and people will uh, will make their voters will make their wishes known. And in 19, uh, let's see what it was in 2005, I wrote a book called Practical Health Reform. And at, towards the end of that book, I ended it with the American Creed. <laughs> the American Creed is that there are three aspects to the American Creed. One is that the government that governs least governs best. A second part of the creed is majority rules. And the third is equal opportunity for for everybody. And it's hard to satisfy all of those parts of the American creed in one stroke. Uh, so we're a very uh, diverse country, uh, divided by different health systems, divided by different belief systems among doctors and, and the corporate world, which I call a chasm in thinking. So things are, don't necessarily go smoothly as we have just demonstrated with the Kavanaugh nomination. Right. We're in the midst of that right now. And and I think to your point, I think it's interesting. I I actually been uh, binging on a podcast about the American Revolution, and it was very interesting listening to uh, the different colonies and, as they're coming up to the Revolutionary War. And they are they were all very culturally, they're all very different. Their origins, the people who settled there, the way they governed themselves. Right. And you know now we have a country of what three hundred and sixty three four hundred million people. It's it's kind of ludicrous to think that you could have one governing philosophy or one way, one culture really that would grab everybody in this country. I mean, I know that when I visit the East coast or the West coast or the Southwest, it seems like a, uh, it's not a totally different country, but it feels like a very different place than where I'm from in the Midwest. And so it's, as you say, that even, and even going on the other side of the state here in Michigan, it's a different culture as well. So it, it's, it's, uh, Maybe hubris to think that you could come up with any sort of policy in D.C. that would then coordinate care throughout the entire country because it is so large and so different. Well, it is. I think the ultimate solution to me may be a, uh, a two-tier system, uh, one dominated by government through Medicare and Medicaid and children's health plans, and one uh, one dominated by the private sector, more entrepreneurial, more choice, and so forth. I do not think there's some, any universal 
homogeneous, one-size-fits-all solution to this. Uh, I, I think that's naive to think that way. Well, and, you know, and getting back a little bit to the HMOs and how they change, I I look at the the healthcare landscape now since Obamacare is enacted in, was it 2009? Um, and, uh, or 2010, I guess. And um, it's interesting because I feel like there was a lot of vertical integration was was sort of the the, the hot way to manage um, to manage medicine, and that sort of accelerated over the last few years. But I feel as if that momentum is sort of petering out, and the the expectation of the gains from a managerial standpoint of controlling uh, physicians controlling all the uh, all the points of care have turned out not to work as well as anticipated, and the and the market share and those and um, the corporate growth. Has not really been there, and so now you've now you brought into your employment a bunch of people who are dissatisfied with their work environment, with no autonomy, as you mentioned, or no ability to change things, as you mentioned. Only about two and a half percent of physicians think they can actually affect the way care is delivered, and so I feel like it it is it is changing, and certainly as you see physicians bailing out, going to direct primary care, uh, you see more independent surgical centers opening up. I feel like you're going you're we may end up with, we are, I mean, I guess you could argue we already have a two, a two tier system as it is anyway, right? You have your large healthcare systems that take care of everybody, whether you pay or not. Uh, and then you have fee for service or some sort of managed care or either HMO or a fee for service plan with the insurance carriers. So do you, do you see that there's a kind of a parallel from the eighties to today that maybe now the, the, what is, what was happening as far as everyone going to manage care and doing vertical integration is now kind of reversing a little bit. Do you see that too? Or is that just my uh, myopic vision? No, I think you're right. I think we, we've reached kind of a pivot point. We're trying to decide as a nation what to do. Of course, the, the, the biggest, one of the most profound change, which we haven't even touched upon, is the introduce, introduction of the information age, uh, which was started big time by Apple and their iPhone. Yeah. And that's 10 years old now. And there's this new phenomena headed by CMS and, and others called value-based care. And the thinking there is if we only base everything on data and study the data, we will arrive at an objective solution uh, to everything because of the massive amount of data and the algorithms to parse it and so forth. I, I'm i skeptical about that as a solution, but uh, but that's at work right now. It's something to watch. Uh, and, and, and people look upon the, the thinking is that doctors left on their own will be greedy and generate volume and income, that we can overcome this by by uh, studying the data and seeing what works best. And, but that hasn't worked out. That isn't working out too well. Uh, and here we're talking about accountable care organizations. Where right. Supposedly everybody will work in sweet harmony and share the risk and divide up the leftover profits among <laughs> themselves. And I think that is in... Uh, that hasn't worked out well. The hospital-dominated uh, accountable care organizations haven't made any money. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the physician-based ACOs have made a little money, but it's uh, this idea that everybody is going to uh, work together, and I, I don't see that happening nationally. Well, and I, and I would say, um, yeah, we I've. We've touched on this in a long, a long time in our in this show, but the fact that we have this this payment system, which is uh, we have this third party, it really makes it, it distorts the decision making in from all parties in the in the decision making process. Right? You have no you have patients who have no desire uh, to act as if there's any scarcity because for them there's uh, minimal costs. Physicians obviously don't feel any costs, and they're, if anything, penalized by their patients' relationship. Um, so they're encouraged to promote and do as much as they possibly can, and sometimes maybe at the detriment of the patients. Um, uh, and then you have the organizations, like the insurance companies, which are the exact opposite, right? They 
they can look at large populations, but they don't care about the individual, the individual itself. And so it's a very strange situation, very strange way to deliver any sort of service. I can't imagine any service industry actually working this way. I mean, I don't think McDonald's would work this way uh, where they, you know, try and figure out what they limit, what kind of hamburgers you can eat and those sorts. I mean, it's kind of hard to envision any other industry working this way. Uh, But of course you don't have a prepaid, you know, hamburger you know, insurance or something like that, where they have every incentive not to provide you as many, you know, as many hamburgers to eat as you want or something like that. At the root of a lot of this, to me, is that our doctors themselves, of which I'm one, and we regard ourselves as a profession to be trusted Yep. and to have our own autonomy, if you will. That is not playing out too well because the the managerial side thinks we can deliver care better than the doctors themselves and uh, that's a that's a huge conflict and many many people feel like the existence of the profession itself is at risk and we will be reduced to data clerks and hospital pawns and so forth and that, that's kind of a that's a significant controversy the future of medicine as a independent profession is at play here we'll see how it works out sure and back in 1965 as we kind of jump around here a little bit but back at the adoption of medicare and medicaid what was the what was the medical community's response to that i mean whether it's i, mean, I think at that point the ama represented or at least had members from most physicians um i think probably 80 or 90% of physicians were members of the AMA, I, I imagine, at that time, whereas today it's about 10%. Uh, what was the response at that time for physicians towards adopting this, this large government payer to, to take care of medical expenses? Were they excited? Were they thinking this would be an efficient way of getting, of getting reimbursement? Well, at the time, people, of course, the AMA opposed it, their representatives, but a lot of physicians embraced it because suddenly they were able to take care of money, take care of patients who did not have income and to do well and to do do good at the same time. Uh, But the consequence of that was that uh, suddenly health care costs became a major issue. And that led to that 1973 Medic HMO Act in which President Nixon tried to constrain uh, health care inflation. So the, the, so the point so the goal with, with Nixon was to try and control costs, right? So because right. now the government was before that, no one really cared in some sense because it was all in the private sector. And so as much as it costs is just what it costs. And it, and it would not in some way, you know, it doesn't affect the public coffers. I think another factor frequently overlooked is the, is the rise of technology. A lot of studies show that accounts for one half to two thirds of the increase in cost. And by technology, let's be specific. Let's talk about MRIs and CAT scans. And when that was introduced, the government opposed it in the mid-70s, but suddenly it took off because the technology was superior. The neurosurgeons could suddenly see what was going on inside the brain, and the orthopedic surgeons saw what was going on inside the joints, and the general surgeons could scan the abdomen to see what was happening inside the body. So this technology expanded dramatically. And, and today, most uh, a great number of the people who enter emergency rooms get a CAT scan and get a uh, or an MRI, so it, it's just become routine. Right. And radiologists have risen to the top of the income ladder in healthcare. So technology is a significant force, and that is being even more magnified by the introduction of infrared information technology and computers and so forth. Right. So who knows what what's going to eventuate out of all of this. I always I, I'm always hesitant. And I remember when I when I uh, interviewed for medical school and they would and one of the questions was always why do you think healthcare is so expensive? And your answer was well there's technology and there's this, you know, people want to there's this concern about over uh, over testing because of medical malpractice concerns. 
And now looking back at that answer, and I don't disagree that technology is more expensive. However, what's interesting about it is that if you look at technology in most sectors, it does not generally raise the price and uh, of most you know most things that you do. It, it just seems to be a medicine. It's just exploded in the. And I don't know if that's because of the third party payer system. Is it because of or is it because of regulatory framework? I mean, electronic health records is another good example. I don't think any physician really thinks it makes them more efficient. Well, I shouldn't say any. Very few, a small percentage of physicians thinks that EHRs make them more efficient, which goes against the whole point of having any sort of computer in the room to begin with, right? The only reason you have computers in most industries is because it makes you more productive. You can book more easily. You can store information more simply. Or you can you know, move things along at a better, more efficiently. And that's, that is just not the case in most of medicine. And so I wonder if the if technology is as much a driver of cost as it is the way that we just pay for it. I, but I don't I don't know how you would prove it one way or the other. Well, I don't either. One of the significant differences between um, the U.S. other Western countries with uh, universal care is the cost of administration. When you break down the healthcare dollar, about ten percent in, in the U.S. goes to technology and management and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that's about five times more than any other country. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we have developed this strange mix of private and public bureaucracy that's uh, time consuming, uh, that's money consuming. I don't know how you handle that. I think it's interesting. I, I, I often sit back and look at how you divvy up the healthcare dollar. 10% goes to, and this is coming off the top of my head, 10% goes to administration. 10% uh, goes to drugs. About 7 or 8% goes to primary care. Collectively, about 20% goes to doctors. 32% goes to hospitals. And pretty soon, uh, as Edward Dirksen used to say, uh, a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, and pretty soon we're talking about real money. It's a collection of things. It's a complex system. I remember very vividly, uh, I'm a lifetime subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. I'm not the Wall Street Journal, the, the New England Journal. Uh -huh. In 1981, the then editor, Arnold Relman, said, you know, the solution to this is all very simple. We've got to rein in profit-making health care, and we've got to harness, the, the, he called it, he coined the phrase, the medical-industrial complex. <laughs> well, the medical-industrial complex, collectively, is huge. It's 20% of the national budget now, and so how does one tamp all this down? Uh, I don't know. I guess the voters will have to decide. <clears throat> Yeah, the voters, or uh, or you know, ultimately, I guess whoever's paying for the care at the end. Which I mean, it's partially the voters, but I I look at the landscape now, and I look at direct primary care, for instance. I look at um, these independent surgical centers, which you know, you were talking about the introduction of in the 1980s, and now, of course, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place, as are urgent care centers. And I I feel like as 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 things become more expensive, as far from a premium standpoint with health insurance, that that now for the first time, certainly in, well, in my lifetime, but in anyone's lifetime almost, that patients are becoming cost sensitive where they weren't, where they just weren't before. I mean, I guess they would be, they would be sensitive in the sense of how much they pay for premiums maybe at some point, but now they're actually finding out the point of care, how expensive things are because they're responsible for that laboratory, that imaging, that uh, office visit. Whereas before they might be responsible for Selecting a year in advance, you know how much that's going to be for their premium. But now they're now every every point along that that care, even going to the drug prices, they're they're being more conscious of how much it costs, even when they have a health insurance. And so now, it's putting some strange pressures on the industry that they weren't anticipating, which has allowed opportunities for entrepreneurs like direct primary care physicians, uh, for instance. Which brings up the the political solution to this. Uh... The progressives think Medicare for all is the answer, which is, and it's quote, free health care. And that's an easy concept to grasp because uh, mm -hmm. you're spending other people's money. <laughs> uh, the 
Republicans' solution is very hard to explain. Uh, their solution is to have have the employers give health savings accounts to put a money for, aside for a, a rainy day on the part of the employers for the employees to appreciate that and to shop around for care because they're now price sensitive and to cover this uh, the problem of serious illness with catastrophic coverage. So it's some combination of health savings accounts and catastrophic coverage uh, for those who are seriously ill. But that's a hard concept to articulate and for the public to understand. Uh, so right. who knows who's going to win the uh, the battle for the minds of, of voters? Well, and, fun- and fundamentally, even with the HSAs, you still have uh, an insurance company that is in, that is in charge or uh, organizing the the fee pattern for physicians. And so, I mean, that's where you look at a direct primary care, and it it just bypasses that entirely, right? Because now you're saying you're just going to get your health care. You just go to whoever you want, whoever you trust, and they will they will direct the healthcare for you. They'll rec- refer you to specialists, and oftentimes they'll get special deals, maybe for imaging or laboratories or medications. And you right. can bypass most of the system. I mean, it, it seems like a, a much it seems like the simplest solution, which is one that's not politically popular with either party because it doesn't involve any lobbyists, would be to say, would be to say, why don't you just go ahead and uh, you can. If we, if we insist on using the tax code, you can use the tax code and say any purchase you make for your health care is tax free, let's say, you know, before taxes. Uh, and then you can go do whatever you want, whether it's drug primary care, if you want to have a you know, Medicare for all plant, whatever you want to do, you can figure out and just do it. Um, but of course, that cuts out the, the pharmaceutical companies, it cuts out the insurance companies, and they, they fund, they give as much money to Republicans as they do <laughs> Democrats. So I imagine it's not politically very popular anywhere. But it seems like it'd be the simplest and allow patients the most uh, the most access to do what they think is best for themselves. Um, I one last thing in your book that I thought was interesting is you had a discussion with the at the time the president of I think he's the president of, of the Mayo Clinic, and yes, and in talking about uh, the Mayo Way, which we always I trained at the University of Iowa in anesthesia, and so we would always joke about the Mayo Way just because they were close to us, and we'd just kind of you know joke about Mayo. I think they even had they read their X-rays backwards uh, from everyone else just because it was just Mayo. So, uh, but uh, one of the things he talked about is that the leadership in the Mayo Clinic was physician-led, and that it was almost like, and I don't know if it's still the case, but it seemed like a third of the physicians were on committees, a third were in management, and a third I think were just practicing, and they'd sort of turn that over so everyone sort of would get sort of in the milieu. And so they have a, they develop sort of a corporate culture, I guess you'd say for, for physician leadership in running the operations. Uh, is, do you, th- right now, most places I would say are not at all have physicians at the lead. And I don't, and I don't know necessarily that physicians are the, the best when it comes to leading all, uh, necessarily, but is that still the Mayo way? And it, do you think that that would be advantageous to organizations to try and push non-business people into a business which... So your question is, do I think the Mayo Way will prevail? Well, not. I, I guess one thing is the Mayo Way is still the same. And the second question would be, is, is, that, a, is that something that more health systems should look at to try and put physicians in the, in the ultimate leadership position, not just like, you know, chief medical officer or something like that? Well, first of all, I, I admire the Mayo Clinic. I, I think it, it, it's a... It's a system, I think, however, that is kind of, it's a cultural phenomena. Minnesota is, is a, a lot of the people there are Scandinavian or German uh, extraction, so they believe in collective organizations working together. So it works It works well in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that is going to be the dominant mode throughout the country. Uh, Paul Elwood, going back to him, predicted in the 70s that we'll have 10 big organizations like Kaiser and Mayo and these other large organizations running the whole system. I just don't believe it's going to happen that way. They'll run a large part of it, but not all of it. Yeah. I Well, I, I tend to agree. And I, 
And I think this is the this is the problem with this is the human fallibility when it comes to predicting the future. I think we can only see what we can see. We can extract out what maybe uh, take what we have today and make it bigger or uh, different. But to envision entirely new systems or new innovations, we're totally incapable of of performing that. I think I know it wasn't that long ago that but 15, 20 years ago, no one could envision Microsoft not having a large stranglehold on the computer personal computer market or the software market right or ibm right and and i know today everyone thinks well google's just such a huge leader there's no way anyone's going to have a search engine that's better well i'd remind you there was yahoo at one point and uh there's and and it seems to be when it comes to corporations as they corporations are bound and determined to maintain growth and if they stop getting growth they lose um they have problems with shareholders and the share price. And so once you get to a certain market penetration, you have to move to other fields. And as you do that, then you start to lose your unique specialization and the things that made you successful. And so I, I wonder now seeing Amazon getting into the healthcare business, getting into the grocery business that you start, that you're starting to see perhaps the beginning of the end of Amazon, even though it looks like they are a dominant player. Thank you for talking to me. And thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.